If you would turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Exodus chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one somewhere near you in one of the back of the the chairs there in front of you. Uh, Exodus will be found in that Bible on page 52. If you need a little bit of assistance in getting there, page 52 in the Pew Bible, Exodus chapter 14. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi Harioth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people, and they said, What is this that we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots, and all other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them. All Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped by the sea by Pi-Harioth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you done, what have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, how greatly we need to see you as you are in your glory. How greatly we need to have an elevated sense of your might, your power, your wisdom. Lord, we confess that we cannot see that or even grasp 
the smallest portion of that apart from the revelation of your word. Lord, we are confident that what you've given to us in your word is not only sufficient, but it is all-powerful. And it is the very means by which you've given to us to reveal your glory to us, to reveal the substance of who you are, and to reveal the great victory that you have over all yours and our enemies. So, Father, we pray that you would help us this morning by the very ministry of your Holy Spirit, that you would cause us to see and enable us to see by faith, what has been written here for our benefit. Or that you would help us to understand not only historical events and the wonders and the miracles that are contained within these pages, but Lord, the grand purpose and that you've given them to us to reveal the glory of your Son. Father, as has been prayed, help us to see our Lord Jesus. Father, we pray that you would help us to know more of your great power, that we would know something more over our great need, and that we would be convinced that you are the only sufficient one able to deal and provide as we need, we ask. For Christ's sake, amen. The question of purpose is one that everyone must eventually grapple with. The question is often first asked when we start to uh, memorize our timetables, or we're asked to diagram a sentence, and we immediately ask why. For what reason? What is the purpose in this activity? And it's something that uh, we don't really move on from. Even if we move on from those elementary subjects, we haven't evaded this question of purpose. Because in our continued learning, uh, within our homes, within our marriages, within our respective vocations, with the responsibilities that we have in time and money, relationships, retirement, we never escape this continual question. For what purpose? Why are we doing this? What is the meaning of this? It's a good question. It's one that should be asked. In fact, when we come to our Bibles, it's a question that we must continually ask. Do you ask the why question? Why is this here? What is the purpose of this? Why would God reveal this to us? Throughout our Old and New Testament, the why question, the purpose question, it's woven there before us. God's purpose in creation. His purpose in redemption. His purpose in the new creation. It's all there for us to serve and magnify one great aim. Himself. God's pressing and persistent aim throughout history is to display his glory. He works to show forth the brilliance of his infinite perfections. The purpose in creation, in redemption, and new creation all serves this great purpose to magnify his worth or his glory, the substance of who he is. Even as you just begin reading maybe chronologically through your Bibles, you don't have to get far before you bump into this why question and the purpose. In the first chapter of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 28, God creates man and woman, and he creates them for a purpose, to display his glory, to be his image bearers, to reflect who he is. And he places them in the garden to do that. You keep reading and you find there in chapter 11 that later in Babel, God's creatures wanted to not make a name for God, but to make a name for themselves. 
seeking to exalt themselves up to heaven. God, in his mercy, actually judges that great adventure because he brings judgment upon them, scattering them throughout the earth. In the very next chapter, you keep going and you find it again because there there's this man called Abraham, or Abram at that point. And Abram's whole purpose was to give glory to God through his faith in God's promise, as God's word, God's word tells us. And so it should really come as no surprise to read that Israel's exodus, as we just did here in chapter 14, also served to magnify this one great aim, God's glory. The purpose, it's actually repeated two times in this passage. God tells Moses, and then Moses goes and tells God's people that Yahweh will get the glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. They will be saved by God's glory. And this exodus from Egypt is described as nothing less than salvation. Don't think it's anything else. It is not a journey. It's not a trip. It's not an escape out the back door. It is nothing less than divine salvation. They've left Egypt. They've begun to make their way into the wilderness, but they are now trapped with with nowhere to hide. They are defenseless. They are outmatched. They are completely pinned down. And in their mind, they are convinced that things are so bad, they literally have two options. It's either go back to Egypt as a slave or die a brutal death in the wilderness. That's where we're at. That's the circumstances that we find ourselves in. But to all of that, they're told directly and firmly, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And as we're gathered here this morning, as God's people, we too are meant to stand still and to gaze, to see the salvation of the Lord. What I mean is that as we read Exodus 14, we are meant to see through the vivid vivid imagery that's given to us here that God will get the glory in the salvation of his people. God will most certainly get the glory in the salvation of his people, and we are meant to see that. We are meant to reflect on that. We are meant to consider that. So that's what we're going to attempt to do this morning by considering that he is our glorious defender, he's our glorious provider, and that he is our glorious victor. Let's look back at chapter 14. Look at verse 19 as we consider that he's our glorious defender. How does he reveal his glory? Well, look at verse 19, where it says that the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So what happens here? The people are out in the wilderness. They lift their eyes to the horizon and find that it is filled with this massive dust cloud as Pharaoh and his brigade of chariots and the officers have now overtaken the people of Israel. They're pinning them down with their backs literally up against the sea. But at this moment, the pillory cloud and fire that had been leading them up to this point, it moves 
from above them to now in between the Egyptians and God's people. The angel of the Lord is now shielding them from all harm. Think for a moment about this image or this idea of a defender. Perhaps you think about a police officer, a bodyguard, a Navy SEAL, a palace guard. The image of a defender, it really is a common narrative in our books, in our movies. From Marvel to Camelot, we like to tell and write stories about defenders, those who step in, those who place themselves between those who are going to be harmed and that which would harm them. And why is that? Could it be that as image bearers of God, we write the stories that are encoded in our DNA? That we know something of this great truth? That we need a defender? That there's something so appealing about that? That it just leaks out of our pores. We can't help but think and write about the idea of being rescued, being defended. I think this idea of a defender or the, uh, our awareness of this need for a defender is one that we're especially aware of when we're in the midst of danger. We need someone who places themselves between us and the danger. Someone who places, places themselves in harm's way to protect us from the enemy. And that is exactly what Yahweh does for Israel. He becomes their great defender by literally placing himself between the host of Egypt and his people. Who exactly is our enemy, though? It's a worthy question to consider. Lest we misapply, run in a direction that is completely unhelpful, get all worked up over something that isn't necessarily true? Who is our enemy? What do the scriptures teach? Well, we could say we know that our enemy is Satan. He is our adversary. He's described as the accuser. He's described as a lion seeking to devour. He's a deceiver. He's the father of lies. He's the great dragon, the accuser of the brethren. He opposes God and all his creation. He's most certainly our enemy. Our enemy is also sin. The corruption of our nature, the root of our rebellion against God's order. Sin is enmity against God by its very definition. And it's because of our sin that God's wrath is upon us. Our enemy is also death. The ultimate end result of our sin and the corruption of our nature is the last enemy, which is death. And so with these three enemies in view, we can read Psalm 3 with David and say, Oh Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no salvation for him in God. But you, O oh Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me 
from his holy hill. Friends, when we talk about the greatness of our salvation and the glory that it reveals of our God, we must give attention to this idea, this image that's right here before us, is the Lord is our defender. We stand face to face with the triune enemy of Satan, sin, and death, and yet the Lord becomes our defender by placing himself between us and our enemy. Our Lord Jesus is not the hireling who runs when the enemy comes. He is the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He places himself between you and your enemies. He is the glorious defender of his people. And that's why God's people can say with all confidence that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Our God is glorious in his defense of us. But secondly, he is also our glorious provider. He's not only our defender, he is our provider. Look how this unfolds as we keep reading. Look back at 14, verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Now, the real panic in this story and the ultimate concern of the people is the recognition that they are most definitely trapped. They followed Moses out of Egypt. They followed this cloud by day and pillar of fire by night. And now it seems like something has gone horribly wrong. They've been following, and they've been led right to this place where they are trapped. Circumstantially, all signs point to death. Pharaoh's armies before us. There's this massive sea behind us. There's no way of escape. And yet, God does what no one saw coming he provides a means of salvation that no one would have considered and reveals himself to be the glorious provider as he makes a way even through the seas. There's a wonderful commentary on this in Psalm 77, verse 11, that says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. 
Clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side, the crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lighted up the world, the earth trembled and shook. Verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is precisely what God does in the saving of his people. He leads us in such a way to convince us that we are absolutely trapped. We eventually realize that we are pressed between two seemingly immovable objects. Before us, is the daunting reality of coming judgment. For here we are created to reflect God's glory, and yet because of our rebellion and our treasonous sin, we have not done that. And we realize that we are actually children of wrath. And so in our sin, we can see His judgment bearing down upon us. It is certain, it is inescapable, it is more ominous than a thousand chariots filled with bloodthirsty warriors. And we are no innocent victims here because we know that we deserve this righteous judgment. He has every right to pursue us and pin us down. That is something that God does to every Christian, that they begin to realize what they actually deserve apart from his grace. What about behind us? Could we escape there? God's judgment is coming. Can I evade it somehow? No. Because we realize as we are led by God that we most certainly are pinned down. It's not only the reality of coming judgment. Behind us, we find no relief either because we can't excuse our sin. We know the guilt of it. We cannot ignore our sin. Our conscience condemns us. It gnaws at us. It keeps us awake. It fills us with shame. It is this massive sea that's behind us, pinning us in to know there's no escape. We are trapped between God's righteous wrath and our own inescapable guilt. Do you have any sense of this? As you sit here this morning, Are you aware of your great need and your inability to do anything about it? If so, the scriptures would compel you to do exactly what the narrative unfolds before us, to look and see at the glorious provision of God's salvation. I mean, think about what we know of God from his word, that he is unchanging, eternally holy, always just, righteous in every way, and yet he also reveals himself as an infinitely loving, merciful, long-suffering God who's full of compassion and kindness. How does God uphold his righteous justice and yet extend mercy on guilty sinners? God makes a way. He is a provider. Just like he did the unthinkable, opening up the seas and providing a way out, God's glorious provision is displayed in the giving of his son. 
God upholds his righteous judgment and deals with our guilty conscience through the provision of Christ's death on the cross. Righteousness and peace have met together. That's the language of Psalm 85. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss together. Friend, righteousness and peace have met. They've embraced upon the cross of our Lord Jesus. God provides a way for righteous judgment to be poured out upon sin and loving mercy to be given. And this is a promise to all who look to him in faith and trust in this provision. Apart from Christ, you are trapped. And you are in a much worse position than Israel. And so hear the announcement of God's word and look to God's gracious provision in Jesus that is simultaneously brings judgment upon sin and a merciful way of escape for his people. Jesus becomes the object of wrath so that we become the objects of mercy. God provides what we could have never have done for ourselves, nor even imagined in our greatest imagination in the giving of his son for us. How glorious is this God in his salvation? Well, he is glorious in his defense, in his provision. But lastly, he is glorious as our victor. Look back at chapter 14. Look at verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea. All Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning, in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen and all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. What good is a salvation if the real threat is not ultimately dealt with? There's a massive difference between having your enemy placated or momentarily pacified and having him conquered. As long as the threat of harm or invasion or assault remains, fear of loss persists. 
There is no lasting peace until ultimate and absolute peace is accomplished. And because the only true security that we can know is the elimination of the threat, what we're given here in Exodus 14 is of utmost importance. Because when the Bible talks about salvation, it's not just simply and only protection against the enemy. The ultimate security and the glory of the salvation is the destruction, the certain destruction of this enemy. And the images in Exodus 14 are meant to assure us and secure us and warn us of the glorious victory that God will get over his enemies. The very same sea that the Israelites passed through in salvation came crashing down upon the Egyptians in judgment. Salvation through judgment. They tried to flee, but as the watery walls subsided, it says again in verse 27, the Egyptians fled into it and the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned. They covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Our Lord is the glorious victor. He reigns supreme. He is the conqueror. He crushes all his enemies. How? How so? The Lord is the victor over our adversary, the devil. God promised in Genesis 3 that a son would be born, and this son would crush the head of the serpent. And Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the second Adam, righteously fulfilled the law so that the accuser has nothing to say. He has bound the strong man, and this son, the second Adam, he is plundering the strong man of all his goods, to use Christ's language. And it was upon Christ's cross that he ultimately disarmed the rulers and authorities, the spiritual hosts of wickedness, and he's put them to open shame, triumphing over them in his cross. And having been disarmed, we await his final destruction when our adversary, the devil, is cast into the lake of fire, along with all the rebellious angels, never to torment God's people again. The accuser's mouth will be shut. The father of lies will be silenced. The destroyer will never again harm God's people because Christ is the victor. And the Lord is not only victor over Satan, the Lord is most certainly victor over sin. The power and the penalty of sin has been broken through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you know what that means? That's not just Bible language. That is the language of freedom. What that means is that those who were once enslaved in bondage to sin are now liberated. In Christ, condemnation and guilt are no more because the just penalty of our sin has been satisfied. It has come down upon another. And in Christ, we are eternally pardoned, forgiven, welcomed. That justice is satisfied. It asks no more. And in Christ, we have a new nature. It's not only that we're forgiven, but we are new creatures. 
God's power, God's Spirit empowers us, Christian, to die more and more to sin and to live unto righteousness, obeying all that He's commanded. And because we're united to Him, we await that day when even the very presence of sin will be done away with. And we will dwell forever in resurrected bodies where only righteousness will reign. The Lord is victor even over our sin. And that third enemy, do you remember him? The enemy, death. Jesus is victor even over death. Jesus makes an end of our last enemy by putting death in its grave. Jesus died and rose again, gloriously triumphing over death. If you want to meditate on this great truth, go home and read 1 Corinthians 15 this afternoon. Let me just read a portion of this in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, this language of victory of the conquering king, is one that ought to be very dear to us as Christians, especially as we think of Christ as our perfect mediator, the one who stands between us and our God. This was a sort of image and the sort of ideas that the writers of our confession had in mind as they sought to summarize what the scriptures teach concerning Christ and his ministry to the believer. And we think upon his office as a king, we remember the language of chapter 8 of our confession, saying that because of our averseness and our utter inability to return to God and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. The office of Christ as king is a wonderful meditation to give yourself to. To consider him as the victor, as the one who convinces, subdues, and draws us to himself. And even then, as he has done that, that he's sufficient to uphold, deliver, and preserve us until his coming kingdom. The victorious king brings his people out so that he might bring them in. That's the language of Exodus. So that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And just how certain is this victory? Is this just spiritual language? Is this just Bible story hour to infuse you with some sort of pep talk? How certain is this victory that we are speaking of? Well, just as certain as seeing thousands of dead Egyptians washed up on the shore. 
Because there's a remaining two verses in Exodus 14. Look at verse 30, or verse 29. The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians so that the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. In the midst of their panic, in the midst of their fear, in the midst of their complaints, they were told what? Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And the next morning they woke up and what did they see? Them on the other side, preserved. God's enemy, dead washed up on the seashore. They saw not only the certainty of the enemy's defeat, but they saw the certainty of God's power over his enemies. And yet again, the Lord is faithful to his word. He brought his people out with a strong hand. And he got the glory over Pharaoh. Yahweh's name will be made known, not Pharaoh, that all may know he's the Lord. Friends, the significance of this Exodus event is not ultimately what we do with it, but it is in what God has done for us already. The significance of this event is for us to peer into it, to stand still and to see the salvation of the Lord. Do you want application of what this means? It means that we stand still and see the the salvation of the Lord. That we peer into this and see, who is this God? What is our enemy? What is the great power and the strong hand by which he brings his people out? Salvation through judgment? Having mercy on those who complain and don't deserve and don't believe? And yet, judging those triumphantly over all those who oppose him. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. He's our glorious defender. He's our glorious provider. And he's our glorious victor. And so let me just ask you, do you see this? This emphasis of seeing, it's throughout chapter 14. We would be amiss if we didn't direct our attention to even seeing this. So I ask you, do you see this? Are you standing still marveling at the glorious salvation of God in which he accomplishes for his people? I press this because of the great danger. If you fail to see this, if you fail to see what God accomplishes in our salvation, we are left with a timid, doubting, self-righteous form of Christianity. Because a low view of salvation leads to a low view of God and little reason for rejoicing in the gospel. If you do not see God as the primary agent, the initiator, the defender, the provider, the conqueror of your salvation, then he's brought shamefully lower to nothing more than the position of a spokesperson, an advertiser, a cheerleader, to move us forward, but certainly not a glorious Savior. This is true. It's no wonder that you barely lift your voice to sing his praises. 
It's no wonder that you constantly doubt if God loves you. It's no wonder that you continually believe that you somehow must earn or secure or maintain his favor that he's promised to have upon you. Because a low view of salvation exposes a low view of God and all manner of bad thinking. Such thinking exposes our ignorance of what sort of salvation we need and what sort of salvation he has actually accomplished. And this distorted and weakened view of Christianity needs the stern and loving rebuke of verse 13. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. Meaning, Christian, God initiates He works for you. He fights for you. And all this talk of whatever shall we do and however shall we make it needs to shut it. That's literally what Moses says to God's people. Stand still. See the salvation of God. Because Yahweh acts decisively, intentionally, faithfully, and triumphantly to save his people so that he gets the glory. Read the Exodus story with the eye of faith and in all confidence because, Christian, it's the declaration of how God will most certainly save his people for his glory. What happened here at the Red Sea is our reminder of what God does for his people even today. That he defends, that he provides, and that he conquers. And so all that remains for us to do today is to fear God and trust Him as we go forward because of the certainty and the great glory of His salvation. Father, we pray that you would most certainly help us to see because we confess that we are so often blind, ignorant, fearful, hard-hearted, stubborn. But Lord, we are so confident and so overwhelmed with thanksgiving and great gladness that you overcome even those sort of hearts, that you overcome even unbelief, that you overcome fear of circumstances, that you overcome pride and ignorance, and that, Father, you open our eyes so that we see the glory of God in the face of Christ. Father, we do pray that you would most certainly help us to see clearly who Jesus is in all of his glorious weight and substance, beauty and victory. Father, we pray that in seeing such a great salvation that we have been given, that we would find ourselves in awe of the great God that we gladly serve. So help us, Father, to not only see these things, but to move forward in fear of you, honoring you and trusting you for all that you would have for us for the measure of days that you give to us. In Christ's name, amen.